Proverbs chapter 5 is our text today. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to chapter 5, and you're welcome to look in the bulletin too. We're working our way through the book of Proverbs, and, and we're seeking to learn wisdom as we do so. Uh, we've said already that wisdom uh, flows out of the fear of the Lord, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we know we're talking about something that, that a believer only comes into as they're walking with God. And as they know Christ and are trusting Him uh, through life in every step, walking with Him, fearing Him, trusting Him with all our hearts, that is the, the soil out of which wisdom grows. And yet, we've said it's not something that's sort of you know, ethereal or theoretical, that Proverbs, wisdom is very practical. Right? It begins with the fear of the Lord, but it's, it's the sort of thing that just filters all the way down into every last area of life, and, and it's spread into all the corners of life. And one of the things we see today in, in this passage in chapter 5 is that it filters down even to our understanding of human sexuality. In fact, we're going to see it, it filters down especially to there. This is a, a topic that Proverbs cares a lot about. Now, one of the things we see in, in chapter 5, and we see this throughout Proverbs, of course, is that it's all written from the perspective of a father speaking to a son. So it's written from the male perspective. Uh, perhaps if Proverbs had been written in 2019, it would have been written maybe differently to encompass both a male and a female perspective, but it wasn't. It was written a long time ago. Uh, but I think it's not that difficult for us to use our imaginations to fill in the gaps that there is sin on both the male and female side and, and uh, plenty of blame to go around for, for everybody, as well as wisdom is commended for both men and women. Uh, but, but we read it as it is and uh, we, we uh, make the appropriate applications. Chapter 5 is like the father sitting his son down to have the talk. Right? And, and some of us know what that means. But it's not a talk about you know, the birds and the bees. It's, it's deeper than that. He's talking about temptation and, and how to avoid temptation. What it means to walk in wisdom with respect to human sexuality. And so this is a very important chapter. Um, it, it's one that, you know, that Solomon actually spends several chapters on and, and we're asked to listen to it and to submit our lives to it. So I'm going to read the chapter for us, all of chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. And let me ask if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. 
drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well? Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, or embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this chapter, the practical wisdom that it imparts to us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts that are receptive to welcoming your word, that treasure it up, that trust in it, and that obey. Lord, may your spirit be at work, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> In one of Dorothy Sayers' short stories, she has a character named uh, Lord Peter Whimsey, who at one point says this, In my youth, they used to make me read the Bible. The trouble was, the only books I took to naturally were the ones they weren't over and above keen on, but I got to know the Song of Songs pretty well by heart. Of course, we're not reading the Song of Songs today, but in some ways, Proverbs chapter 5 and part of 6 and 7 have a lot of similarities to it. And this is a part where he is talking about wisdom as it relates to human sexuality. Uh, it's a chapter that you might not expect when we read the Bible. Some of the, some of the details that he goes into, some of the descriptions he uses are at times almost too hot to handle. They make me a little nervous to talk about these things in church sometimes. And yet here they are. The Lord addresses these things. He offers his wisdom freely to us in, for every area of life, even this area of life. And so <clears throat> this is a chapter where he talks about physical and romantic love, physical and romantic desire and temptation, and shows us that these things are things that God cares about, that there is a holy and a God-glorifying way to engage these things, to practice them, uh, to, to, to know them, to love them. And that is only in the context of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. He sets that out very clearly in here and very practically for us. So I have four points as we walk through this passage together and see what it has to teach us. Number one, why are we talking about this in church? Number two, a theology of sin and temptation. Number three, a theology of marital love and happiness. And number four, a theology of grace. Those are the four points. Number one, why are we talking about this in church? And the answer is because the Bible talks about it a lot, actually. This is a, what we find to be a very common theme throughout Proverbs. Uh, we already saw a little bit of it back in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. All of chapter 5 is dedicated to it. The second half of chapter 6, starting in verse 20, is dedicated to it. And all of chapter 7 is about the same theme. 
So this ends up being one of the major themes that the father in Proverbs wants to impart wisdom to his son upon, which we really shouldn't find surprising, should we? Here, here's a topic of, of, of sexuality and temptation that every single person ever to walk the face of the earth deals with. And it's very important that we know how to deal with it. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the father cares about his son and loves him and wants him to be wise with this. Now, the Bible says a lot about it, so there's a lot to listen to, and three, three lessons stand out right away. Uh, these are all within why we're talking about it, but three lessons stand out just right on the surface. The first lesson is that God really cares about sexual purity. Just the pure number of verses that are dedicated to this topic show us right away how important it is. That this is not some little side topic. That this is important. One, uh, one commentator asked the question, like, why, why does he think that the Bible spends so much time talking about this? And he simply said, because the temptation in it is so great. Right? It's important to God to talk to us about things like this because he knows our hearts. He knows how we are made. He remembers that we are dust. He knows the temptations that we face. And he knows how important this is. And so, here's, here's all these chapters just laying out wisdom for us, free for us to take. And, and the reality is, if we're going to walk in wisdom and if we're going to walk in the fear of the Lord, that it must be a very practical wisdom that, that learns eventually how to express wisdom in everyday life. And it's not some ethereal thing where it's purely philosophical and mental, but wisdom affects how we walk day by day. Wisdom affects how we think about our own temptation. And what we do with our own temptation. The temptation is there. We know it is. Right? Th- this makes it clear to us that, I, that for Proverbs and for the Bible, wisdom is not something that's reserved for you know, just a few extra godly souls. Wisdom is not something that only the seminary professors really attain. Wisdom is for everybody in Proverbs. Right? Anyone who will listen. Proverbs says wisdom calls aloud in the streets, right? It's public, it's, it's common, it's for anyone who is willing to listen that wisdom is for all Christians to, to help us. Say, how do we navigate all the complexities, all the difficulties of everyday life, right? It, it's so easy to sit in church and to, we read the Bible together and we nod and we think, this is, this is very good. The rest of life is very complicated, right? We face many temptations. We face many difficulties. We don't know... How, how the proper way is to, to navigate all of these things. And so Proverbs gives us wisdom that is for us, it's for everybody, it's practical, it's down-to-earth, it's where the rubber meets the road. And one of the most down-to-earth issues we face is, is sexual temptation. And so Proverbs is going to give us wisdom for that. Right? The Bible speaks to us where we are. Now, there will be some, probably not in here, but some who, who will say to this, who will simply respond with something like, well, you know, what I do... In the privacy of my home is none of God's business. God has a response to that. We find it in verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. That's God's perspective. That he will either be the Lord of all of life or none. Right? We, what we don't have is the option to say, I will compartmentalize and give these areas of my life to the Lord and I will reserve these other areas to do as I want. And when we give our hearts to the Lord, we give, we give everything, our entire lives. All authority is given to God, right? Hebrews reminds us that nothing is hidden from God. 
before whom we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God cares about every area of life. And so this Proverbs, it calls us in, in every area to listen and to submit each new area. And so in some ways we see Proverbs, it just walks us through different corners of our lives. And in each one kind of probes and says, have you submitted this to God? Are you willing to trust God in this area? Right? And, and we just walk through and we say, wow, I hadn't thought of that before. And that's why we need wisdom. So the first lesson that just stands out right away is God cares about our purity. The second lesson is that the consequences of impurity are extreme. Look at verses 3 through 6. Um, well, I'll start in verse 5. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. There's the consequences that are laid out for us if we allow ourselves to get caught up in, in sin and temptation. And, and we get so caught up in that that we never find opportunity to repent and to turn back and to listen to the Lord. Proverbs says, here's the destination of that path. You think, well, I'm just going to walk a little ways down that path. Do we really want to take those steps knowing that the path leads to the grave? The consequences of impurity are very serious. So the three lessons, God cares about our purity, the consequences are extreme, but here's the third lesson that we have to start with, right, before we get into it in any more detail. The third lesson is, is this, Proverbs talks a lot about uh, sexual purity, not simply to beat us down with it, but because there is healing and there is refreshment available in Christ. And I want to say that very clearly up front because there are many, many people, and, and I'm talking about believers and unbelievers and anyone in between, there are many people who have failed in this area. And particularly when you fail and you're a believer in Christ, that often, you know, any failure in this area often carries with it a deep sense of personal shame, often a sense of real personal condemnation. These, this becomes one of those deep and dark secrets that we feel like we can't share, right? we can't be honest with, uh, that we never talk about in polite company. We fear rejection if people knew this about us. Um, and sometimes we even would fear that you know, God himself would condemn us. The Bible condemns us for these things. But that's not the approach of Proverbs. That's not the direction that Proverbs is coming at this from. Uh, one of the hallmarks of, of wisdom in Proverbs is this. The wise person is not the person who has everything all together. The wise person is the person who is willing to listen, who is willing to accept correction. That is the, that's one of the hallmarks of wisdom in Proverbs, is that the wise person is willing to listen. They will accept reproof, correction. They will, uh, they will turn we remember chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, look at those verses. Chapter 3, 7 and 8 says this, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. If we, if we trust the Lord and turn away from evil, it will be healing and it will be refreshment. Right, here's the, the approach that Proverbs takes to these things. It wants to call us out on our sin, not to condemn us, but to offer healing. And it will say, if you are willing to turn, right, if you're that wise person who can listen to these things and turn away from that, there's healing and refreshment, and not just refreshment 
uh, you know, at a shallow level, refreshment for your bones, right? This is not like a, an easy little band-aid. It says this is a refreshment that works like to the core of your being. It changes who you are. It's a refreshment that gives grace all the way down. It, it's healing to your flesh and it's refreshment to your bones if you are willing to fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You see, Proverbs never condemns the sinner. The only person Proverbs ever condemns is the fool who won't listen, the one who trusts his own way, the one who does not have an ear to listen to the reproof of God. That's the person, there's just no hope. It's it's not even up to Proverbs to condemn them. They condemn themselves because they won't listen, they won't turn. But Proverbs says, if if you're wise, we listen, and if we listen, we find refreshment, we find healing. So, That's three reasons why we're talking about this, right, in church, is because uh, we have sinned, God cares about it, but there's healing and there's hope and there's refreshment that's available. Now, the second point is this, the theology of sexual sin and temptation. What does the Bible teach us? Uh, This chapter has a lot to say about temptation, what to do with it, how it works. Uh, The first half of this chapter is just a warning about the dangers of falling into temptation. Now, I call it temptation. The, the chapter is talking about adultery. I think we can use that as sort of an sort of all-encompassing term right, for any kind of, of sexual sin. And their name is Legion. But let's just, let's just assume them all under this one title. Because again, here, the Father has a very frank talk with us here, uh, calling us as his sons to listen Uh, And he really gives an insightful breakdown on the nature of temptation. And if if we don't understand how temptation works in our lives, you know, we never see it coming, we're always caught off guard, how are we supposed to to resist? But he breaks it down for us. The first thing to know about temptation is that it always looks sweet, but it always ends up sour. Right? Verses 3 and 4. The lips of the forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end... She's bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. This is how temptation works, and this is why temptation is tempting, right? Because it looks sweet. It entices us. There's promises of happiness and delight. It tells us, you know, we will experience something great. This is all temptation, by the way. But what is it doing? It, it sells us a bill of goods, right? There's, nothing, there's no substance. There's no reality. It's lying to us. But the lie always begins with the promise this is, this is going to be great, right? You are going to get something you like, but in the end, and we know this from the scriptures, in the end, she's bitter as wormwood. We know it from experience as well. The reality is always bitter. Temptation always makes promises that it can't deliver on. Uh, it promises and leaves us empty. It looks sweet, but it makes us sick. And, and that's not some flaw in human nature. Right? God has designed us to be this way. God has designed us with hearts that are built to be satisfied with the glory of Jesus Christ and with the grace of God the Father, with the holiness and the righteousness and the purity of God the Father. And that is what our hearts are made for originally. It is through sin that we have fallen now and we feel like we can fill that longing and somehow satisfy that need in our heart uh, and we look for all of these replacements, all these imitations. Right? And, and that's where we feel this temptation. We think, oh, this or that, whatever it is, will 
will, will bring true satisfaction, will fill this great longing and this great desire that I feel in my heart. Right? God has designed us with these desires. The problem is temptation is lying to us. And so we, we try to cheat those desires with shortcuts and with imitations that are not ever designed for our good. Uh, second thing about temptation, uh, giving in to temptation when we actually do sin and we give into it and we fall short. It, it may be gratifying in the moment, uh, but in the end, it, it sucks the life out of you. Uh, this is verse 9 and 10. Lest you give your honor to others, your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And, you know, it, it's never enough to, to stand up here and say, you know, sin is no fun. Because if it wasn't fun, no one would do it. <laughs> right? The reason we're tempted is because it makes these promises and we think, yes, it, it will be fun, it will feel good in the moment. And I don't think the Bible denies that, but it does deny that there's any lasting satisfaction that comes from that. In the end, it says, it is actually in that very moment, you're having a good time, but it's sucking the very life out of your heart. Right? You're, you're, you're giving away your honor, your, your years are being wasted. It promises life, all it delivers is death. Uh, we always g- give in to temptation thinking that we're going to get life out of it, and 100% of the time we're wrong. And yet it gets us every time. Third, giving in to temptation always leads to disappointment and regret, at least in the long run. Uh, verses 11 through 14. At the end of your life you groan, and when your flesh and body are consumed, you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to the instruction. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Uh, Proverbs doesn't just say, sin is wrong, therefore don't do it. It also shows us the picture of the person who won't listen. And it says, look at what life becomes. Look at what sin does to you. It promises so much satisfaction. Here's a window into this person at the end of their life who says, I'm ruined. I'm ruined. And and at the end of your life, you groan, you're consumed, and and you simply have this picture of regret. These verses are some of the saddest verses. Where it's, it's like you get a little glimpse, you know, time travel into the future to say, is this what you want life to be at the end of your days? There's really a, a great deal of insight into the human situation in this. And, uh, and the wise person is the person who's going to key in on that and listen and say, thank you for this advance warning. Right? The reality is that you know, there's nothing really deep or mysterious about sin. Uh, we sin because we want to. We sin because we think it's going to be good. Uh, but Proverbs says, sure, it makes you happy for the moment and then you die. Is that worth it? It, it just lays out all its cards for us, you know? Makes it plain. Here's the reality. Uh, and so the first half of this chapter is, is here's the way temptation works. It's, it's, uh, it's going to lead to death. Here's the danger. My son, avoid sexual impurity. Avoid adultery. Avoid this whole realm. Um, verse, verse 8, don't go near the door of her house. Avoid it completely. Don't even get near to this temptation. Avoid the door of her house altogether. Um, But thankfully, the chapter doesn't stop there. It goes on. And and the second half of the chapter is 
a theology then of marital love and happiness. If all we had was the first half of this chapter, we might get the picture all wrong and uh, we might get the impression that the Bible is just prudish. It doesn't want us to have fun. It thinks all, all sexuality is just bad. Stay away from it altogether. Uh, but that's not true. The Bible is actually incredibly positive about physical intimacy so long as it's in the right setting. And that's exactly what the second half of the chapter is about. Uh, just for illustration purposes, think about the nature of fire. Right? When there's a fire in the fireplace on a cold winter's night, you know, if you're somewhere that has cold winter's nights, and, and you come in and you sit by the fire and it's crackling and it's hot and it warms up your toes, right? that's life. That, that's happiness and joy and warmth all right there uh, in, in the joy of having a fire. But what happens if the fire gets out of the fireplace? It burns the house down. And here the, the one thing that gave so much joy and happiness now is destruction and, and death and danger. That's, that's a picture of the way the Bible talks about our sexuality. That in the right context, that is within the context of a marriage, it is life and it's good. And outside the, the context of marriage, it becomes dangerous and destructive and it leads to death. This is a very well-balanced chapter. Right? The, the dangers of, of, of our sexuality outside of marriage balanced by the goodness and the joy of it within marriage. Right? I think, you know, if you just talk to people in, in the world today, right, they, they will probably know at a very basic level that somehow the Bible is against sexuality outside of marriage. What they might not know is that the opposite is also true. That the Bible has a very positive view of human sexuality so long as it is within the context of marriage. And we'll look at some of these verses here, starting in verse 15. But um, Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. See, for Proverbs, the metaphor is not fire, it's water. But the picture here is very similar. It's saying uh, these things are good and you are to use them and get delight from them so long as it's kept private, right? In the house. Uh, that's where it's good. If it's, if it's outside the house, if it's on the public square, if it's publicly available to anyone who's walking by, that's bad. That's foolish and that's evil. Uh, it goes on, um, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Some of the, you know, the terms the Bible uses, the Bible apparently does not blush at this. Like I'm even a little nervous to talk about these things in church. But you know, this is, some of these terms are a little too hot to handle. Like this, you know, it says, where it says be intoxicated always in her love, Right? This has a very passionate view of marital love. Right? It wants you to go 110% in your marriage to have this great uh, view of what marriage ought to be. The Bible does not have a, sort of a, what we would call a puritanical view. Like, right? it's, it's only out of necessity right? for the, the furtherment of the race. No, the Bible delights in physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. It delights in it. It says that gives glory to God. Right? It tells us that here it is, right? And we're to obey these things, right? Married men are to obey verse 19. It's in the Bible. You have to. 
Not me, it's the Bible. God said it. Um, and it says that this is the God-given antidote to adultery, uh, any other form of sexual impurity, temptation, lust, whatever it is. That God gives this to us for our good and for our joy, for our delight, and for our purity. Right, to keep us away from sin. Because God knows how he made us, right? He's not surprised. He knows the desires and the longings that he's placed in our hearts. And for the satisfaction of those, he gives us the marriage relationship. To have a legitimate outlet for these things. But there's a contrast. The contrast in verse 19 and 20, right? Uh, 19 talks about being, being intoxicated always in the love of your wife. And verse 20 says, here's the flip side. Why should you be intoxicated my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. See, both verses recognize that the, the desire is there. But verse 19 is the legitimate outlet, right? With, you know, be intoxicated with your, the love of your wife. Right? Intoxicated is, you know, staggering drunk with the love of your wife. Let that just, you know, knock you over. Verse 20 says, but don't, but don't ever have that same intoxication with a foreign woman, right? a different woman is what that means, someone else, someone who's not your wife. So there's a legitimate uh, outlet and there's an illegitimate outlet. Now, Proverbs kind of paints the picture for us, right? There's some poetic language. Paul just cuts right to the chase, if you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Exact same thing that he's describing. He says, 1 Corinthians 7, 2, he says this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each wo woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. He, I mean, he just kind of says it. That's what Proverbs is getting at. That's what it means. That God has designed marriage for, a, a very, uh, for many purposes, but one specific purpose is that it is the legitimate arena for the satisfaction of these physical desires. And that within marriage, they are glorifying to God and we are to thank and praise him for that. Right? Proverbs and the whole Bible, in fact, is just, it's not prudish about marital love. In fact, Proverbs has what I would describe as a very high view of human sexuality and a very high view of marriage. Right? It feels like not many in our culture really walk that line very well of having a high view of both. We tend to have... A, a high view of one at the expense of the other. Proverbs holds them both together. It has a high view of both, marriage and sexuality. And, and that is consistent throughout the Bible. Uh, at the end of Proverbs, it, chapter 30, it has this great little couple. well, it's not a couplet, I suppose, 30 verses 18 and 19. And it says this. It, it's just that an expression of wonder and praise, I think. Chapter 30 uh, verses 18 and 19. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I don't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. To just express sort of the wonder and the delight and the, the beyond comprehension of, of different aspects of creation, but the, the most glorious and perhaps the most mysterious of all is the relationship of a man and a woman. And, just to, and, and these, this is meant as an expression of praise to God to say, he's the one whose wisdom has created all these things. And they are good, right? It's delighting in those things. They're not bad. They're not to be feared. In the right context, they're good. Now, fourth point. 
Uh, so we've done a, a theology of sin and a theology of marriage, but now a theology of grace. And again, I want to. We started with this at the beginning, and I want to end with it at the end because I think this is the most important to just kind of envelop this whole topic in the grace of God. I, because we know, we know where we are on this. We know how how much trouble each of our hearts deals with this. Um, and so let's just end with a theology of grace. Chapter 5, verse 12, back to this very sad picture where it says, how I hated discipline. Uh, my heart despised reproof. Again, that's the ultimate fool in Proverbs is the one who won't listen. The sad picture of the person at the end of their life, they haven't, they haven't listened. They've stubbornly followed their own desires. They've refused to listen to instruction. And now look at them. They're broken down. They're lonely. They say they're at the edge of utter ruin. And and Proverbs is very straightforward about the fact that apart from Christ, that's where sexual sin takes you. Right? We we think that uh, this is going to be a great and a deep connection. In the end, it leads to loneliness. You think it's a mark of manliness and courage. In reality, it's a futile pursuit. It leads to death. He says, I didn't listen. But who, who, who loves discipline? Right? He says, I hated discipline, and he regrets that, but how do we learn to love discipline? Proverbs chapter 3, again, verse 11 and 12, says this, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. Again, the hallmark of wisdom is we listen. Don't despise his discipline. And then we get to the end of, the, end of life and we're broken down and we regret that. We say, how I hated it. He says, don't despise it. Don't be weary. Why? For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. The way that we learn to love the Lord's discipline is we know that he is a father who delights in us as his children. Right? We love the Lord's discipline when we, when we know Christ when we walk with Christ. And then we we understand everything through the lens of a God who has loved us so deeply, even while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And then we understand, okay, his his discipline is not a mark of his hatred for me, it's a mark of his love for me. He's not doing this to me to break me down and, and to utterly despise me at the end of my life. He's doing this for my healing because there is refreshment available to my very bones if I will accept his reproof. It's the same reason I tell my kids, look both ways before you cross the street. And that's not because I hate them. I love them. I don't want them to die. God loves us. He doesn't want us to die. And so he gives us this warning. Right? When Hebrews reflects on those words, it says, yes, discipline is painful. But it's good. And later it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The ones who can receive the Lord's discipline, even on a very sensitive topic like this, are only going to be the ones who know God through Christ, who know his fatherly love for his children, that he loves us to such a degree and to such a depth that he gave his own son to die for us. And if he has given Christ for us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give you all things? Literally all things are yours. There is nothing that can separate you from God's love. Not even Difficult, bitter reproof like this. It's an expression of love. And and the father of Proverbs says, Sons, listen. Turn. Find healing. There is life. There is refreshment available to you. 
I'm going to read a few other verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just to put this very plainly and very clearly so that we hear it. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, here's Paul pulling no punches about the fact that these things are sin and we are not to walk in them, that they lead to death. We will not inherit the kingdom of God in them. Uh, and, and verse 11 is very stark. And he simply says to this church that he's writing to, such were some of you. He's, he's not pretending. You know, right? Paul doesn't have his, you know, he's not under a rock. He knows such were some of you. There are Christians who fail in this. And he, he knows these sins are not just people out there. Right? It's people in the church as well. But, verse 11, he goes on, you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the great lines in the Bible. Uh, Heath Lambert says it this way, your, your sexuality, your sinfulness, does not have the last word. Right? The grace of Jesus Christ has the last word in defining who you are. And we need these words, Right? Those who have fallen in this area, they often feel, feel very dirty. And, and Paul says, you have been washed in Christ. And we often feel the weight of, just the weight of sin and unholiness. And Jesus says, you have been sanctified. You're purified, washed, white in the blood of Christ. We often feel guilty. We feel, not just guilty, we feel condemned for what we've done. And, and Jesus says, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the judicial judgment spoken over you at the trial. You are found in Christ to be not guilty of your sins. Yes, in yourself, you, you've committed these sins. There's no getting around that. But you are covered now by the blood of Christ so that when God looks at us, he does not see all of our many failings, all of the times we give in to temptation. He doesn't see our sin. He sees someone who has been purified, sanctified, and justified. And he says, well done. He says, enter into the joy of your master. And he invites us. He invites us to come and he invites us right around the, the family dining room table by the grace of Christ, which is so abundant, enough to cover all of our sins, to, to then come to Christ and, and to be a part of his family and to rejoice in him and to worship him with freedom and with joy and happiness. There is abundant grace in the, in the kingdom of heaven, there's only one category of person, and it's going to be redeemed sinners like us. Sinners in ourselves, but redeemed by Jesus Christ, purified and made, uh, made welcome. <clears throat> you might remember St. Augustine, one of the great fathers of the church, fourth century guy. Uh, a book, his confessions, we still read today. It's a great book, and, and in those, one of his confessions is that in his youth, he sinned in giving himself over to his lusts. But reflecting on that, as a Christian, he writes this. I acknowledge that it was by your grace and mercy that you melted away my sins like ice. I acknowledge, too, that by your grace I was preserved from whatever sins I did not commit. 
For there was no knowing what I might have done, since I loved evil, even if it served no purpose. But I avow now that you have forgiven me all, both the sins which I committed of my own accord and those which by your guidance I was spared from committing. That's where we end today, is with this. Jesus Christ forgives all our sin, and he leads us in the paths of righteousness, even for his name's sake, that we may walk to the glory of God and find life eternal in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which imparts grace to our hearts, which, uh, which mercifully warns us away from sin and, and graciously invites us to walk the paths of life with Jesus Christ by our side. We pray that by the power of your spirit we may not feel condemned for our sin, but that in every moment when the, the ugly powers of the tempter are pressing on our hearts and, and t- trying to condemn our hearts, at that moment, Lord, help us to abide in Christ. And help us to trust in Christ and to delight in Christ and to praise your name that, that no condemnation comes from you. And that your word is greater than the tempter's word and your word is greater than our heart's word. And you, you pronounce over us the word of justification and sanctification that we are therefore yours. Lord, we thank you. We pray that by the power of your spirit we'll walk in your ways. Give us strength, Lord, we are weak. Give us grace. Lord, illumine our path. May your word be a light and a lamp for us to lead us in the way everlasting. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his name's sake. Amen.